I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. A warm welcome for Hans Ulrich Obrist and Tom McCarthy. Thank you very much. Thanks, Claire, and hi, Hans Ulrich. And this is uh, yeah, this is this is quite a book. I mean, it's it's uh, it's wonderful. And I was very uh, I was very honoured to be asked to write this this small um, introduction because you know I'd been thinking a lot about maps in relation to my own work and in relation to you know literature and art in general. And I'd and I'd kind of done some research into um, basic cartography, cartography one hundred and one. And the first thing you find out in any textbook about maps is, is very interesting. It's basically that they don't work. There's no such thing as a good map for the simple geometric reason that the Earth is spherical, but paper is flat. And it's physically impossible to um, convert a, 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 a sphere onto a two-dimensional plane. So any map... Um, unlike a globe, which is a kind of miniature, it's a model, a map is, is a projection. And I love this term. It has kind of psychoanalytic as well as formal and mechanical kind of connotations. And, and so the first, um, the first decision any cartographer has to make is what type of projection to use. You can go for zenithal, stereographic, orthographic, sinusoidal, gnomonic, and 20 others, which all have their advantages but their disadvantages as well. The main one being that at some point you're, un- you're going to undergo infinite distortion. So on Mercator's map, which is the standard you know, one that we had for centuries, you know, the kind of the, the equatorial regions pan out fine. I mean, okay, it looks, makes Europe look very big and Africa look much smaller than it is. But generally things look kind of a bit right until you get to the poles and then they undergo infinite distortion and Greenland becomes bigger than all of Africa you can flip that by going for a polar gnomonic or a reverse mercator but then the equator undergoes infinite distortion so basically the map the cartographer's quandary is the same as the draftsman's quandary it's it's the problem of perspective so it seems that there's a there's a or you soon find out that there's an intimate relationship between Maps and art, Western traditional pictorial art, which continues well into the 21st and 20th century through conceptual art and so on. Um, So my first question to you, I guess, is what made you as an art guy, a curator who's who's collaborated with pretty much all of the kind of prominent artists of our of our era? You know, what what sparked your 
interest in maps in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, first of all, uh, as Tom said, it's incredibly exciting uh, to be here tonight. And thank you all for being here. And of course, many, many thanks to also uh, Thames and Hudson, because this has been uh, actually a very, very long durational project. One can say it's almost five years in the, in the making. And I think that idea of having time or liberating time to do such books is a, is a very wonderful thing, you know, if a publisher allows that to happen. And of course, Andrew Brown is here tonight, and uh, without Andrew, this book would never have happened, because not only has he accompanied it, uh, you know, editorially, but also been very, very instrumental to then actually turn this sprawling archive of maps into, um, into a, you know, a structured book. Now, the thing is, how it started, I would say, it probably started when I was 17 years old. I visited the um, artist Alighiero Boetti. It was a few weeks after I had met Gerhard Richter, which was my first. I mean, basically, officially, Weiss were my first life-changing experience. And then Gerhard Richter, you know, a few weeks later, and officially Weiss said I should go and see this guy Alighiero Boetti in Rome. And they He's very famous for his huge uh, maps. Embroidered right? maps of the world. And obviously, you know, he would make these maps, and then he would sort of have them embroidered in, in Afghanistan. He also owned a hotel, a conceptual hotel called One Hotel in Afghanistan and he would have, you know, communities in Afghanistan embroidered his map, but by the time the slow process of the embroidery had happened, the world order had changed and he needed to do the next one. And then, you know, the war broke out in, in, in Afghanistan and he then continued to do them in Pakistan. So, we looked at these amazing maps of, of Adeguero Boetti and I had a conversation with him, which is actually very much reflecting on what you wrote in the preface, because we talked about Duro, you know, we talked about Leonardo, we talked about that sort of whole connection of actually it being connected deeply to the draftsman's problem, the, the, you know, the notion of the map. We talked about Holbein, all these names you mentioned, you know, came up, you know, by, by Boetti. But we also talked about one less known person who then became sort of my most important guide, one can say, in, uh, in theory, who is uh, Edouard Glissant. And Edouard Glissant um, uh, is somebody Boetti always felt uh, was very uh, fundamental and you know, encouraged me to read. And a few years later, uh, I, I then met Glissant. Uh, he is a poet. It's very sad that he isn't translated more in, you know, in, into English. There's, there are dozens of his books in French. He's from Martinique. Uh, died about two, two, three years ago um, and had for, for, for many, many decades written about this idea of mapping actually about an archipelago rather than um, it being continental. He sort of says basically, and that's something, you know, Boeti felt was important that if we think about the 21st century, the 20th century is maybe more about continental maps, mapping continents, whilst actually... Uh, the 21st century will be more about archipelago. The archipelago is a passage and not a wall. Uh, the archipelago is welcoming and sheltering. It's not imposing. Uh, and that has obviously to do, you know, with the origin of, of, uh, of Glissant, Martinique, you know, Cuba, Guadeloupe, Haiti. That is all part of that wonderful archipelago. But the archipelago map is also, and it's kind of interesting because... Uh, uh, in an almost telepathic way, both Tom and I, we share this interest in archipelago map. And I'll ask Tom in a minute a question about his archipelago, the cover of his new book. But, you know, Glissant sent me this fax, um, uh, which we then, you know, used, uh, uh, which is actually um, a drawing. You'll find a different version of it also in the book about this idea of the archipelago, you know, being being a passage. And so that, I would say, were the triggers. The triggers for the interest were um, Boetti, there were, was Glissant. Um, and then, obviously, in some kind of way, um, uh, I started to more sort of proactively, five, six years ago, encourage 
artists to contribute, you know, maps for uh, an eventual book, which was then still virtual. Most and of these maps in this book came at your kind of um, prompting, right? They did them for, for you. Yeah, they always do. And it's kind of like part of my, one could call them virtual exhibitions, because in some, in some way, I've always, you know, besides the exhibitions I would organize in physically in, in museums, uh, I would always have these exhibitions which are which are virtual exhibitions and I mean do it was the beginning of that where we ask hundreds of artists to write a recipe to write an instruction uh, and then the book can be realized I mean the, the show can be realized or not and that project still goes on now after after 20 years then we had a similar thing with formulas I was once in a, in a, in a cafe in Basel with Albert Hoffman a man who invented LSD um, and he on a napkin drew this very beautiful formula for LSD, and and then I kind of thought this is incredible, you know, and I showed it to many artists, and many artists then were prompted by that to do their own formula, and that gave actually, uh, you know, it was the beginning of the of Formulas the previous for now, book, yeah, formulas yeah. for now, which was also done with with Thames and Hudson, and Osmarie Tockel then encouraged me, you know, to make it into into a book, and then we uh, we spoke, you know, to the publisher. So the idea to always have, you know, and at the moment after the maps, it's at the moment it's handwriting. It's the sort of thing that I observed yeah. that handwriting disappears. Umberto Eco wrote the text in the Guardian about that, and I'm f- extremely worried about the fact that we no longer, you know have this culture of letters, uh, that letter writing sort of disappears and that, that handwriting disappears. And so I was thinking, how could we actually go beyond Umberto Eco's mere complaint and be positive and bring it back into the internet? So I made, started this campaign on Twitter and Instagram so that every day, and hopefully later tonight, we're going to post a handwriting by Tom, that every day you know, I would post a handwritten sentence by an artist or an architect um, uh, to basically celebrate the fact that, you know, nobody in this room has the same handwriting than the other. It is about the diversity of all these different handwritings. And that, of course, in a few years, will then again, you know, produce a book. So I always have these long-term, you know, virtual exhibitions, which usually lead to books. But then at a certain moment, they led to marathons also. And that was in 2005 in Stuttgart, because I was asked by a theater to do a theater performance. And I said, you know, they had contacted the wrong person because I'm not a theater director. And, you know, they should, I just cannot do it. But then they said, is there not something you could put, you know, on stage? And then I thought, because I do these long, long conversations and parallel to the curating, I thought it would be interesting to do a nonstop conversation. And we did a nonstop Stuka conversation for 24 hours. Uh, and it was quite tough to be alone on stage. And everybody had a great time and then for dinner, but I was still on stage. And I kind of thought, and that's why then in 2006, when I started uh, uh, as co-director at the Serpentine Gallery and the collaboration with Julia Peyton John started, we found this different format for the marathon because we, Julia invented the, the, the pavilions in 2000 and, um, uh, and basically I had a year before came up with this marathon idea. So I started to do the marathons you know, in the pavilion uh, and it, it sort of proved to be more fun if two people are on stage because then if one has a low after 18 hours, the other one can take over. <laughs> so we did it with Rem Kohlhaas and it was this 24-hour marathon as a portrait of, of city. And ever since, you know, these um, projects of these spra- sprawling, you know, archive projects not, not only lead to books, but they also lead to these live events. There's a desire for these live moment. They're kind of hybrids between performance, maybe festivals, one can say, and also talks. Salons, yeah. So. Yeah. And it's obviously fantastic, and we're extremely honored that uh, Richard Sennett, one of the great pioneers of the marathons, uh, who has been so instrumental in, in the marathons, is here 
you know, with us, uh, with us tonight. And that then, you know, led to the MAP marathon. So at a certain moment, the idea was there to do a book. But then the MAP marathon really uh, started to uh, intensify the work on it. And, we, uh, uh, and that's still early stages because then it somehow became also important to bring in the digital. And that was a whole yeah. other chapter. Yeah. It's interesting, this, this slip. From, uh, to, from from Boetti to Glissant, you know, from from the the visual artist to the to the writer, and that you mentioned so many writers, because it seems to me that I mean, maps and literature are as intimately linked as maps and visual art. I mean, the Divine Comedy is kind of mm. a, a mapping exercise. I mean, and you can trace that all the way through to something like I don't know, Pynchon's Mason and Dixon or whatever. I mean, it's always been with, with Lewis Carroll, this huge, uh, you know looming presence in the middle or you know Ulysses is kind of a mapping exercise of Dublin and and so on and and um I don't know I mean I I have a kind of personal relation to this relation because you know I grew up in Greenwich which is the center of the world and I mean literally you know it's there is it, it is the prime meridian and I used to skateboard across this this line every day when I was a kid and and uh well, and also this is where Conrad sets the secret agent because there was a real attempt to blow up the observatory that failed just inches or feet away from that line. And, and you realise that actually space is completely um, arbitrary. The meridian could be anywhere. In fact, it used to be in Paris and then London kind of politicked it off them at some conference and that they kind of strong-armed everyone to vote for London. And there's, I mean, it, it's literally a fiction. I mean, there is a line, an inscription, a piece of writing in the earth. And I realise that, you know, geography, geography means like writing the earth, inscribing the earth. So, I mean, this, this kind of relation between literature and maps. And, and it was very interesting for me to read your afterword where you mentioned the importance of Mark Lombardi to this whole project. Mark Lombardi did these amazing um, kind of paranoid but true uh, uh, kind of mappings of, of power and influence and, and of the kind of relation between corporate power and governmental power and the CIA and so on, and then died in mysterious circumstances to kind of top it all. But I didn't realise until I'd read your, your, uh, your, your piece that he referred to these, you know, visual art pieces as narratives. He says this is a narrative um, which is kind of interesting, I mean, that, that, that a map or a piece of visual art should be thought of as primarily a, a narrative. I mean, do you see all these as, as narratives in some way? No, it's fascinating the link to, 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 um, to literature because I think, I mean, Alain Robbe-Grier, who is a, an author we both admire, um, whenever I you know, met with him, talked about maps. And obviously, we, if you look at you know, Jalousie, for example... Oh, it has a map on the first has page. has a map on, yeah. the first, on the first page. Uh, but that came later because I became friends with Rob Grier in the late 90s. But I think the beginning, really, with literature on maps for me is kind of Robert Walser because I founded this museum in 92 um, uh, as a museum on the move. So it's a portable museum. And I mean, I can say that that map book is kind of a portable exhibition because obviously all the maps being made for the book, you know, one can say, you know, it doesn't exist outside the book form. So the, the, the book is kind of the exhibition. So we did this sort of portable, movable museum for Robert Walser for his walking eye. And I mean, some kind of way, um, Walser, I was very fascinated as, as a teenager, of course, by Walser's walks, but also by the way he, in his fictitious exile to Paris, because he obviously was in Berlin in, the ex, in his real exile, then he was in Switzerland he, in his interior or inner exile, is probably the word in English, but then he had this, you know, fictitious Parisian exile, which never had happened. And uh, in some kind of way, he wrote these 
Parisian papers, uh, quoting here, to me, the Parisian papers are a substitute for the theater. Also, not even the finest restaurants will I honor with my feet. So subtle have I become. Gulps of beer no longer pass my lips. My ear approves only the most melodiousness of the French language. Once I adored a lady, a true lady today, I find her most clumsy since Le Figaro has spoiled me. Did Le Matin not drive me half mad while my colleagues write themselves sick in this modern time of crisis? I grow exuberant through my papers, a trip which I intended to take to Paris, I consider completed. I became acquainted with France's capital by way of reading. So this whole idea that he kind of mapped Paris without actually ever having been there. It's very like Des Sant in Huisman's, who kind of maps the world by yeah, exactly. sitting in his bath and smelling perfumes from Italy. He'd rather smell the perfume it's better than going to Italy that doesn't smell Italian enough, you know. <laughs> so, but it was in, also, I mean, you mentioned Valtzer. I was very interested to learn that, um, that Valtzer was, was quite a big influence on the Situationists as well. And, I mean, you were born a year before me, virtually to the day. I mean, you were born in May 68. And I think for both of us, this is the kind of year zero, right? The kind of, you know, this mythical um, time when situationism kind of, you know, reached its apotheosis in Paris. And, and of course, these guys are absolutely obsessed with, with maps and strategies of kind of alternative cartography and dérive and détournement and making fake maps and, and so on and so on. And, and you actually, you interviewed, um, I can never pronounce his name, Raoul Varegnum, Varegnum. And, and he talked about Volzer and I mean, yeah. tell us a bit about his whole how how that that whole way of thinking about space and cartography influence your your thinking with this book. Yeah, that whole idea that sort of linked to situationism um, uh, was sort of important because of the whole idea of the of the derive. And uh, uh, now, obviously, Guy Debord is is dead, so it's too late to interview uh, <laughs> to interview him. But Raoul Van Egem is still alive and obviously a wonderful author. But he never appears in public. He doesn't want, you know, to appear in photographs. Um, so, but he agreed to be interviewed by, by letter. So uh, we, we did this long interview, which became a little book uh, as a correspondence. And then once the book was out, I wrote to him and I said, you know, it would be wonderful uh, that, we, um, uh, that, we could, that we could meet and you know, I could give him the book. So, so he gave me an appointment in Brussels, you know, and we met over a beer and uh, he basically said, you know, Obviously, uh, no photographs being taken of the meeting because he wants to stay anonymous. And so, you know, and he lives in the countryside as a recluse. And in that conversation, we, you know, that conversation we had in, 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 in Brussels, he actually talked about Robert Walser. And it's fascinating that that connection between Robert Walser and situationism was for me also new. It came out of that conversation. He said, it's a quote, I hold Robert Walser in high regard, as many do. Um, his lucidity and sense of the reef enchanted Kafka. My psychogeographic derives with Guy Debord in Paris, Barcelona, Brussels, Basel, and Antwerp were exceptional moments combining theoretical speculation, sentient intelligence, the critical analysis of beings and places, and a pleasure of cheerful drinking. Our home ports were pleasant bistros. That's actually where I met him, in a bistro, with a warm atmosphere, havens where one was oneself because one felt in the air something of the authentic life, however fragile and short-lived. It was an identical mood that guided our wanderings through the streets, the lanes and the alleys, through the meanderings of a pleasure that our every step helped us gorge in terms of what it might take to expand and refine it just a little further. So that sort of whole idea that Walser 
was a trigger for the situation in the reef seemed kind of very fascinating. But Tom, I wanted to ask you your question because just looking at your you know new book cover, that's an archipelago yes. map, and you know we talk here about Robert Walser's map, we talk about uh, Ulysses, we talk about um, Pynchon, uh, and and we talk of course about Vanagem and and and, and Guido Bar. But it would be fantastic to hear from you what, what's the kind of role of map because beyond the fact that it's on the cover of your book, it plays a very big role. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know. The new book's called Satin Island, and it's kind of, it's about, the, the hero's an anthropologist, so, but a corporate anthropologist. I mean, this kind of ties in with situationism. I think it's quite interesting, the way that so much of that logic and, and practice and strategies, which belonged then to the far left, have just been, uh, you know, recuperated, as the board would say, into basic, you know, the, the strategy of the corporate creative industries. I mean, as, as your friend Rem uh, Coolhouse points out, this idea, Dali's idea of critical paranoia is now just a, brain, a corporate brainstorming session. I mean, it's, you know, it's, so there's this kind of interesting drift into, into um, you know, mainstream practice. And I guess, I don't know, it's hard to talk about the book. I mean, I literally just finished it. It won't be out for another six months. But, but the American designer has just made this beautiful cover that's kind of referencing Tris Tropique and, and the idea of archipelagos that are also maybe just ink splats and, and the idea of, you know, how do you constellate points? How do you map uh, reality? I mean, this is why I think the situationists are so important because, because their, their mapping wasn't a kind of passive mapping. It was an active production and a very political production of, of, of not just reality but but you know a, a disruptive projection of other other realities you know and and um you know this is kind of quite this is this is important right this is an important kind of history to plug into i think your book's plugging into this quite a lot i mean lots of the maps in it are not real maps in any describable way and yet they seem to have a kind of um i don't know what you use the word truth but a you know a kind of um you know force com- compellingness to them. But then at the same time, I mean, it's interesting that you've got quite a lot of maps by uh, people who aren't artists or writers. I mean, they're, they're scientists. I mean, you've got Tim Berners-Lee, who you just told me doesn't do email, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that's kind of, you, you know, so, so there are maps showing the spread of disease or species extinction or, or, you know, house prices in London or the effects of a tsunami. I mean, why, why was... Uh, I mean, I know you say in your afterword, you, you know, and, and you credit Georgi Kepes for this. You say this book is an attempt to go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge. Um, I mean, do you see the scientist maps and the artist maps as kind of essentially the same? Or do you think there's like a categorical difference in what they're doing and the way a map functions for uh, these, you know, in a kind of C.P. Snow two cultures kind of way. It got definitely to do with the C.P. Snow idea. I mean, it's very inspired by John Brockman's website, Edge, one of my favorite, you know, places to, to read things online on edge.org, um, where many of the great scientists of the world, you know, are being interviewed, are publishing texts. Where at the end of the year, John Brockman always, in, the, in homage to James Libayos, asks a great question and then... It's like a World Question Center every year, and that produces. I mean, th- that's kind of maybe actually important because, in some kind of way, that's definitely an inspiration for this type of book. Is you know, Brockman asks a question every year, and then 
the entire science world kind of reacts to it, and that produces a book. And that's a little bit in a slightly different way, but what you know, I'm doing with the art world with these these projects, which sort of grow over time. But then at a certain moment, in very close dialogue with Brockman, I felt it would be really interesting to get you know, particularly with a topic like maps, scientists involved, and so we teamed up with uh, John Brockman and that was particularly um, at the moment of the marathon he brought many scientists to um, to give to give lectures and but then also actually put online through his whole edge community an open call asking for for maps from from scientists and there were many wonderful responses from geneticists from uh, uh, all kinds of scientists, mathematicians, um, and of course, uh, the, the, uh, basically the inventor of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, came up with this amazing map, which he told me the other day, because I finally met him for the first time in person, um, and he told me that we should look at it with a magnifying glass. And if we look in the book with a magnifying glass, you'll, you'll make very astonishing discoveries, which you actually don't see, and the map becomes even more political, because it's obviously a map which very much, you know, is critical, deeply critical of the you know, commercialization of, of the of the World Wide Web as it you know as it happens now, which is against the idea of what he, as the founder of it, you know, had imagined this to be. And a lot of that is actually almost encrypted in in the map. So that's that can be fun to kind of look at Tim Berners-Lee map with a magnifying glass. But then you know it was sort of with Edge that we did this, and so you can say it's almost. But we and that that was important when the editing happened with Andrew that we didn't want to have a book within the book just all the science maps but we started to mix them up according to different categories and so you will find in the book art maps and and, and science maps you know wildly mixed which we thought is more exciting yeah I mean one thing I think you're more you're more kind of connective much more than than me in this respect I mean I always balk when I when I hear the word neuroscience I mean, I, I'm more than bulk. I kind of get angry. I mean, at, at, the, at the transfer, this kind of transfer of neuroscience to the, to the realm of culture, because I, I, I'm, I'm very wary. I think it's actually one of the great intellectual follies of our era, this idea that if we could do a brain scan of Joyce, we'd understand Ulysses, or Shakespeare, we'd understand Hamlet. I mean, it's, it's politically conservative, and it's just playing wrong, because the whole point about art is that it takes place in the symbolic. I mean, it's about language and history and power and gender and all these things, a set of relations which are ongoing and exterior and contingent, and most importantly, contestable, right? That's why we have art in the first place. It's political. You know, these things can be contested and have been ever since the Greeks. And I wonder if there's a... I mean, this is not at all a critique of, you know, because lots of the science maps in, in this book are really fantastic. But I wonder if there's a kind of category difference between people that are using maps to reveal a fixed truth on the one hand and on the other people that are using maps to produce a kind of radical ambiguity and put it in the world in the form of a map, which is a narrative, which is a, you know, etc. I mean, would you see, do you think that kind of distinction holds between basically positivism and art? <laughs> I mean, it goes back to Boiti because it goes back to the, you know, and to what you said initially, this kind of impossibility of a map that they never work. And I think, in, you know, in some kind of way, Boiti had another endeavor, which I thought is probably his absolute, uh, you know, mapping endeavor, which is that he wanted to map the thousand longest rivers in the world. Now, obviously, 
we can need a you know map rivers now can we measure them because whenever we measure them because of the meandric you know river flow um, the, lots of different results come out so if you look basically uh, in, in different sources there is not one reliable source for the length of a river so he worked for years and years I mean that's pre-internet so they had to consult all these archives um, on all these you know river uh, length and he did this amazing book called The Thousand Longest that's Rivers yeah here is the Tim Berners-Lee's map, and yeah. somewhere there is this little tower, and that's where you have to put the magnifying glass. <laughs> and so then, um, actually, uh, Boetti made this book. It's a thousand pages, and on each page you've got what he considered to be the most reliable source of the length of the river, and then all the basically contradictory sources. So it's very much a book of you know order and disorder, and it's sort of a, it's a mise en abîme really of any kind of mapping uh, of any kind of mapping mapping endeavor. But I think I mean what is interesting about the art science thing, I suppose, is that um, I mean it very much these projects are very much sort of inspired always by this idea of Diaghilev and he, you know, when he and Cocteau had this exchange about the Etonemai, these about people are invited to come up with something surprising. So it is actually very interesting that very often scientists contribute extremely unexpected maps which go also outside, the, you know. Yeah, this their, is true. Their no, kind yeah, of this research is, this is, yeah. And, and all of that. And so, so in some kind of way, I mean, that's what's interesting about Andrew's idea to mix it because sometimes it's actually very blurry what is an art map yeah. and what is a science map. I mean, I think all of my favorite. I know you're not allowed to say this because you got to be impartial, but I'm allowed to say. It. And, and lots of my favorite ones in this book are always the ones that my favorite section is the unmappable section, where you go straight for the the blind spot, which is actually the most interesting part of any map, anyhow. And and um, and uh, yeah. So in in a way, it's about it's about knowledge production, not in the form of what we can then know, but in the form of what we can not know. New things that we cannot know. You know, new blind spots, blank spots. Um, and, and this seems also to be a very, you know, a logic that comes from situationism, Guy Debord's idea, which is also very like the um, Wiener's idea with cybernetics, that, that knowledge gets interesting not at the centre of its kind of playing field, but, but beyond the borders, where it stops working, where it kind of meets another whole form of discourse with another logic and things start to unravel. And, um, I mean, there's a brilliant... There's quite a few maps in, in, in this book, like Anri Sala kind of maps a non-existent person and Pay White talks about how a void is a real space and, and, um, and Philip Pereno's brilliant kind of map, which is actually an essay, which is... I don't know what it is, but he says... You know, the, the, invisible, the invisible is what has to remain invisible so that the visible can be visible. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, you know, and then he also says something really interesting. You mentioned this idea of an event, the production of event. He says, uh, um, Pareno, a map is where a frame is established that allows something to happen. That's brilliant. I mean, especially when you think of it in relation to his Zidane movie, which is about exactly that, the cartography of a football pitch and the production of an event which is a football game, you know, and yet for most of the time nothing's happening because you're only watching Zidane. And it reminded me of, you know, Malame's line about nothing will have taken place except the place and the amount of white space there is in, in, in his book. And then you have Do- Dominique Gonzalez Foster's um, contribution to this book, which looks very much like, like Malame's throw of the dice of all its typographic exercises and, and blank spaces. But, I mean, sorry, I'm going on and on, but, but the question is, I mean, you, you seem to be very drawn for all the right reasons, to this kind of, um, these, these voids, these chasms, right? These, these white-on-white moments. Yeah, in, I mean, in that's maps. definitely a chapter. Then there are the, you know, the, the very political maps. You have, you know, Claude Parence, uh, the 
French um, urbanist who is now uh, in Remcola, his architecture biennale uh, in, in, in Venice. He very present. He develops a map about um, about climate change, and that's I mean, in some kind of way, that leads us almost to the next sort of big research we are doing, the next marathon we are doing at um, at the Serpentine, which will be about extinction. Because actually, when we talked about you know mapping of climate change, Gustav Metzger got very upset because he says basically you know nothing will ever change if we talk about climate change or if we talk about environment we need to you know talk about extinction because only if we really talk about extinction you know people will wake up and so he encouraged us to do an extinction marathon uh, and obviously extinction um, in all kinds of forms and you know A.S. Bayard pointed out the other day when uh, we met with Adam Thurwell that um, when is the last time we have all seen a centipede uh, and there was a very weird silence at the table. And, you know, we really hadn't uh, seen a centipede in a long, long time. Also, obviously, during our childhood, it was a rather frequent appearance. And uh, uh, so extinction of all kinds of species, the, you know, the menace of the extinction of bees, etc., etc. And Gustav Metzger's um, kind of with us developing this, uh, this marathon. And uh, you know, it has to do with this map here of, uh, of, uh, of Claude Parent. But I'm still with your previous thing about the unmappable. I'm also, for yeah. me, I mean, I don't have a favorite section in the book. And obviously, I love all the maps in the book. But I mean, there is one map, which is certainly the map which touched me most. And, and I still think about it very, very regularly, which is uh, about um, a few days, really, um, maybe a week or so before, before she died, Nancy Spiro, um, uh, yeah, the great American her, artist yeah. did her last work. It's the last work she ever realized, which is basically about the non-mappability of, of death. We cannot map death. And, and I think that's one of the deepest and most incredible works of art. It's a kind of a set of squiggles with heaven at the top and hell at the bottom, right? So yeah, kind of big it's a trembling void in, in between. And it has again the void in between, yeah. <laughs> Should we open this conversation up? Maybe I don't know how long. Oh, yeah. Should we? Should we? Would people like to? I mean, we can just carry on talking. But I mean, if no one wants to jump in right now, but maybe someone does. I can ask you about Google Maps. Um, I loathe Google, and the thing that's always struck me about the Google Maps is that they have no correspondence to the reality of what you experience when you walk or even when you drive. And uh, without being paranoid about it, that this is intentional, I wonder if in a way the kind of mapping that they do, which is the shortest distance between two points, the most efficient distance between two points, as I say, without being paranoid about it, isn't actually a way of destroying the lived reality of what you, what, uh, what you experience in the city. It seems to me an absolutely um, nefarious way of thinking about mapping a city, that the, the, the way you want to go is the shortest way. Yeah, I mean, I think, Tom, you should start because Google Maps pop up in your text. It's, it's, yeah, it has a I mean, major, yeah, yeah, they have loads of glitches. But yes, totally, it's evil. And it's, and it's, um, <clears throat> it's a return to the straight, the rigidity of the Cartesian grid. It's a gridding of space. I mean, it's, it's a reversal of the whole kind of impetus of, of dérive and twisting and uh, détournement and, and, you know, opening up... Um, gaps of, of a difference and so on and so on. And one thing I actually love about this book is the number of um, 
bad grids in it. I mean, earlier we saw the was it um, Ernesto Neto, the picture of a net that had gone wrong. Several of the of the artists, especially, use grids. Fia Backstrom has all these dissolving grids, and Toyo Ito has a kind of cheese-like labyrinth of holes. So that there's a, I think there's a lot of people that are systematically attacking that very Cartesian slash Google kind of logic. And I guess, I think quite a lot of people have read Deleuze as well, I'm guessing, of your artists. There's a lot of um, kind of, ri- Margarita Glitzberg has a rhizomatic navigational kind of um, app, you know, if you like. That's her contribution. And, and Kerif Wynn Evans has torn up a, a, a face and made a Deleuzean kind of fold. And I think especially the artists are trying to introduce a lot of glitches into that orthogonal right. space right. of power, yeah. you know. You know, in society, the return of this kind of orthogonal tyranny of uh, has, uh, this is one of the most terrible things that's happened to people's understanding of the city. And, you know, you, artistically, you can see all the, the, what should be, shouldn't happen. But in terms of power relations, something like Google Map is a way of dominating people's experience. And it sells. It's, it is he- he- hegemonic. Yeah. And the question is obviously in terms of resistance, you know, what, and, and, and I think that's, that's actually something, Tom, I wanted to ask you in relation to situationism, because in the very first marathon in 2006, you know, Rem has said, you know, the whole situationist vocabulary has also become very used, and it's kind of like... Uh, oh, yeah, psychogeography just means, like, Sunday supplement exactly, journalism. Exactly, so it's, like a, it's a cliché, uh, or, or as <laughs> Louis Bourgeois would have said, in plâtre de platitude, no? Yeah. And, and, and so, so in this sense, we need a new kind of maybe neologisms or whatever that could be. And I was wondering, Tom, because when we met for the first time, you know, and you, it was just at the moment when you were both in the art world, I mean, you're still in all these worlds, in these parallel realities, you're obviously still in the art world, but you now also have a major, major, you're a major force in the literature world, and that was just about to happen when we met, that you started to go into the literature world more. Uh, but at that time, you had also uh, a lot of work with neo-situationism. You had the, um, and have the Necronautical Society, you showed me lots of pamphlets in our very first meeting, pamphlets with maps. And I was kind of wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that and how, you know, that sort of over time changed yeah. and it, where you see such a new language or new vocabulary could go addressing uh, you know Richard's essential concern yeah. that we need a, crit- a critique of that and yeah. knowing at the same time as Ram said in 2006 the situationism is no longer that critique yeah I th- I've been reading Michel de Certo recently he's brilliant he's fucking brilliant I mean and then it totally addresses all that he's a Jesuit priest bizarrely I mean who'd have thought it um, but he his vision is kind of it's very interesting he sees exactly what you're saying we're trapped within the orthogonal space of of power and this is he calls this a scriptural space it's a set of inscriptions a gridded inscription on space and all our experience is kind of controlled and prescripted and so on and then his kind of strategy of resistance is 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 kind of he talks about abjection in this kind of julia kristeva george bataille way just um abjection you know he talks about cries of pain things that escape um you know, he talks about the linguistic equivalent of, of erections or of rips and, and, and wounds. And I mean, I guess that's kind of Christian in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. And, and then he talks about, after Beckett, he talks about the unnameable. And, and, and this is kind of, which would be the unmappable as well. But, but how 
he tries to reinsert that into the grid. And for him, this, this would not be outside of language or outside of writing, but it would be a kind of counter-scriptural writing, a, 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 you know, a, a breakout of, of unmappability, of, of glitch. And I, I think that's very kind of compelling, and I think it's a lot more um, sophisticated than, than lots of De Boer's thinking around, or lots, a lot more applicable to now. But I, I'd like to know what you think. I mean, you're kind of an expert on this. More than, more than me. <laughs> no, it would be great, Richard, to hear. <laughs> no, no, the other thing I think that it's it's an it's incredibly urgent that Edouard Glissant is translated. I mean, I think I think that is really seeing again also Tom your cover of your book. You know, I think there is a, 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 a. It's very strange because we mentioned Deleuze, and obviously Deleuze is very present in these in these maps. But I mean, if you think about what is a toolbox for the 21st century, what is is a toolbox to resist the homogenizing forces of globalization, which is obviously what is at stake. I suppose in what Richard describes in relation to the city, what what is a toolbox to resist that? It, it seems to me Glissant is the key model. I mean, I have his, his, his um, name is Glissé, right? Sliding. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> Perfect. It's perfect. It's sliding off the grid, and and um, and he. Um, I mean, I read Edouard Glissant every day, 50 minutes when I wake up in the morning. It's one of my many rituals, uh, because as Tarkovsky said, we need to reintroduce rituals in our ritual, you know, less kind of lives of the, the early 21st century. Tarkovsky always said, I mean, he, he was alive because the later part of the 20th century, and he said, you know, rituals disappear. And so I always thought, like, and another ritual of mine is to buy a book, um, at least one book every day. So that's kind of an urgent ritual being in the bookstore. <laughs> but it is this ritual of reading Edouard Glissant every morning, and I think Edouard. I mean, there is this very wonderful thing about mapping where he talks about the archipelago map as opposed to the, you know, the continental map. But he also talks about the map, the cartography of mondialité. And I think the cartography of mondialité is very much an answer to that sort of, you know, homogenizing mapping, which happens now again. Because he talks about this idea that we have in the current moment different possibility to, to, to negotiate uh, in our mapping endeavors, as also in our all other endeavors in our life, I suppose, um, these forces of globalization, which are, I mean, it's not the first time that we live globalization. I mean, I suppose uh, the Roman Empire was a moment of globalization, but it certainly... The current moment, uh, also technology-driven, is the most extreme, if not most violent moment of, of globalization there has ever been. And as Glissant says um, in his texts on mondialité, this obviously leads to the homogenizing forces and, and, and tyranny, uh, which uh, we can see now, uh, on the one hand, by embracing these forces of globalization, yet at the same time, by rejecting them completely, it leads to all the neo-nationalisms we can, you know, observe in big parts of Europe now. And so um, Glissant basically proclaims this idea of the mondialité, which is a, a, a permanently different, it's basically an engaging in global dialogue, but it's permanently only by, by creating difference. So it's basically a, um, uh, re it's resisting the annihilating forces of the homogenized globalization, but not refusing using that global diet, yeah. but entering it, which I think is really this incredibly interesting uh, negotiation which can happen right now. And he did this in his poems. He did this in his so urbanism. What, what, decade amazing, is he, what decade is he um, Yeah, I met him in the, uh, in the sort of in the 90s, and then he was sort of 60. So he, and he died in his late 70s, early 80s. So he would have lived from 20, maybe from, yeah, 29 to... So he's writing this in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and something yeah. like that, yeah. He would have lived... Oh, sorry, yeah. And he would have worked in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, he was a, uh, you know, in the, in the colonial liberation, he was a, he was a friend of, uh, of Fanon, 
uh, he was very much part of the in the 50s you know of that struggle and uh, uh, he then um, uh, became also a very very eminent uh, poet uh, uh, wrote uh, amazing books on William Faulkner I mean it's a whole earth to discover and it's just a complete scandal that it's not translated it's as important as Deleuze but it's not okay. translated so you talk about um, Bruno Latour in a very similar way in your afterword, and, and you point out that, that he said, I mean, quite recently, um, when he writes about the digital and, and you know, neoliberalism and so on, that, that the, um, the challenge for the, the whole, you know, the crux of, of, of subjectivity and of politics and of the aesthetics and everything is uh, navigation. That's what it comes down to. It's just yeah. all about navigation, which is kind of what Lewis Carroll said as well, thinking of maps in The Hunting of the Snark. But... Um, Navigation was always a difficult art. But it's just occurred to me that this book is actually, it's almost like your autobiography. I mean, everything you do is about um, mapping connections. And then, and then it's not just the map, it's, it's the app too. I mean, you then you, you, you kind of, you know, for, for several decades now, you've been coming up with um, strategies. Formulas for Now, as your last book was called, which is a kind of reaction to this. You make the map, then you create the app. Is that is that kind of good? Way? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I think this is, I think this is um, this goes this book kind of or, or, or this project goes to the core of kind of what you're about. No. Yeah, I suppose that that all of these. And what you do as a curator and as a cultural agent. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, all of these projects are kind of they're like for me they're like mobile exhibitions. They're kind of very inspired by. You know, this idea when Duchamp did his box and you could carry the exhibition everywhere. And, and I always loved this idea that it's, uh, that they're kind of, you know, they're portable exhibitions. And then I was always wondering, obviously, because with the mapping uh, book, it's, it's very much, it takes into account the digital age. You know, however, it's still a, it's an incredibly physical object. And uh, uh, then always was the question, you know, could one actually uh, make such an exhibition, you know, digitally? And the first kind of time I do this now is with the handwriting project, because the handwriting project actually, which is, again, I mean, it has to do with resistance. It has to do to resist the disappearance of... I think the question is not only what, you know, all the possibilities we gain mm. in the digital age, but the, the big thing is what we lose. Okay. And, I mean, one of the things we might lose is, 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 is memory, for example. I mean, the thing, uh, amnesia might very well be uh, at the center, you know, at the core of the digital age, which made us do at the Serpentine the Memory Marathon in close collaboration with Eric Hobsbawm. It was the last project Eric Hobsbawm worked on and uh, was actually his very last text, was this text, you know, he was writing for us on, on memory, on this necessity of the protest against forgetting, you know, in in the, digital, in the digital age. And so in a similar way, the, the handwriting project has again to do with that resistance, but the handwriting project uh, sort of goes the other way around. Or it's kind of a paradox because it happens on, on Instagram and Twitter because as I thought it would be really important to introduce handwriting you know, into these um, new sort of formats. Uh, and obviously these new formats are not made for handwriting. Twitter is not really a, you know, made for handwriting. You just you know, type the number of characters, but you know, we just post images mm. of these handwriting written sentences, you know, through Instagram and Twitter, and so it's a form of, you know, circulating it that way. But obviously, it's just a detour because at the end, I am quite convinced that whole handwriting project will again produce a book. <laughs> so, what did Anthony Powell say? Books do furnish a room. Books do furnish. A room. We've got Margarita Glitzberg here, and then there's a there's a, a man at the back. Okay, um, is that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to actually ask about, um, because maybe there is a kind of disappearance of the map, and um, 
the difference between directions and maps? Because actually, um, I mean, in a way, the direction is... (laughs) (laughs) Directions um, was something that preceded the map, you know, go there, turn left, turn right, and there's no kind of authoritarian projection, like you say, that this this fake projection. But actually what's happening now with SatNav is that, you know, in, in that same of the evil empire, we're being given directions, you know, and as all good ideas... Um, so the Deleuzean structure of not kind of being a nomad, where you're just given direction, there's no long-term vision, there's just this short-term nomadic space, but actually it's completely directed. So, you know, like all good ideas, they're appropriated by corporate structures and basically turned into another sort of um, control. Di- control device, which I think is really interesting. I mean, in the same way that Nick Land and Sadie Plant had this dream of the cyber kind of revolution which turned into a marketplace essentially so mm. I just wonder where we are with the disappearance of the map and the, and the kind of no, capitalist colonialization of direction again no this is yours I mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's a general thing isn't it every I mean yes the man recuperates everything as, as De Boer kept saying but then he's, he's taking in the, um, the glitches too you know, so I mean, like in the postcard, Derrida says, you know, every advance in the postal system brings the police state a step closer, but it also gives the resistance better um, networks. You know, it creates new blind spots. I mean, it, it, it seems to, you know, it, 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 there always seems to be seems to be new possibilities of, of um, you know, of a type of res- new types of resistance become possible. No, with, with the adv- I'm not that pessimistic. Maybe I'm naive. I don't know what, what you think. Yeah, I mean, the question is also the sort of layering, you know, can there be a kind of, a, can there be new hybrid maps in some kind of way, you know, of, of uh, and that's, I mean, you mentioned Latour, and Latour talks about these layerings, you know, that there could actually be uh, new forms of layering. That's maybe something to think about, but it's a big question. In the 90s, when I lived in, in, in Berlin, there was, you know, there weren't mobile phones, obviously, and people, and no one even had proper phones in the East, so people were just writing chalk, you know, when you were going to meet someone, and of course you were half an hour late, you just write on a wall, you know, we're in this pub or we're in this Hinterhof. And there was, was all over and all over East Berlin, there'd be these little arrows saying, you know, Fred, this and here. Or, and it's like with the centipedes, you know, it's this idea that certain things disappear. I mean, the other day, I, I really had a shock the other day. It was completely under shock because we, we worked on this little book on, on my hotel exhibition because I did this show in 93 talking about nomadism, you know, about artists living in hotels. And there was this hotel in Paris where Raymond Haynes, the great artist of the Derive. It's all about cartography and mapping. He, you know, he and Villegle walked through the street in Paris in the 56s and tore down posters and made these amazing, what they were called the Desaffichistes. No? So Raymond Ains lived in a hotel and then I was kind of like thinking, wow, I mean, I was a student at that time. I thought this would be my dream, you know, to live in a hotel. So I went a few months to live in the same hotel until I couldn't afford it anymore. It was a very shabby, you know, hotel uh, called the Carlton Palace and the palace sign had fallen from the facade and he stored his artworks in the corridor. I mean, it's unthinkable now, no? And so the artworks in the corridor and he was in, you know, in, in, in the hotel room and I then decided to transform my hotel room into an exhibition space. So without really telling the hotel, I invited 70 artists to exhibit in my room and the hotel just thought that because we had, you know, this guy has a lot of visitors in his room and then like after about three weeks, you know, there was this exhibition and we announced it and by the time the hotel realized what happened, it was too, too late to stop it and there was, <laughs> you know, queues of people coming and all of that. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we had this archive 
life and there wasn't at the time any possibility to do a book so somebody in Germany did a hotel exhibition and they wanted to publish my book 21 years after so I went back to the archive box and you know contacted together with Pierre Guillon, we contacted Richard Hollis, the um, legendary English graphic designer who's always been a hero of mine. It was always my dream, you know, to do a book with him. So we brought him the book, the, the box, you know, with all the letters and stuff. And, you know, he designed this little tiny little publication, you know, made out of all this archive thing. And I had a complete shock because in this, in this box were hundreds and hundreds of incredibly beautiful little pieces of paper, which were basically messages taken by the hotel from people who called. So they would say, you know, at 7.53 p.m., there was a phone call from Frédéric Boulibouabre from the Ivory Coast, the late, you know, visionary African artist from the Ivory Coast leaving you the following message. And then, you know, the hotel in handwriting. And so, but there were hundreds of those messages, you know, um, of artists calling from all over the world. And I, you know, the shock was that not only don't we have that today anymore, I had completely forgotten that we ever had it. It's something which, and whenever we were in hotel, we got these little pieces of paper. It's gone. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a man who's been waiting very patiently. Um, hi. Uh, so as a neuroscientist, I sort of feel I should defend the, uh, oh, <laughs> the earlier allegation about um, sort of neuroscience goal to, um, um, to map the brain as a way to reveal, um, for example... I don't um, think the fault lies of neuroscientists. I think it lies with artists who transfer the logic. Yes, yeah, so I think that's yeah. exactly right. So I think, um, so, you know, neuroscientists, uh, you are absolutely right. The neuroscientists, you know, brain mapping is the, the hot topic in neuroscience at the moment. And everyone is uh, investing. You know, Obama has given a presidential decree to, to uh, invest in, investigate this. Uh, the, uh, the EU is, I think, a billion euros up to, uh, to investigate. And so the Human Connection Project, there's lots of things going on about literally this, mapping the brain. But I think... You know, that, that isn't the same as saying that that will mean that if we map Joyce's brain, then we'll understand Ulysses. I think there is an understanding that there is a kind of temporal component here and that all the neuroscientists can do is, is map it out. And I think memory is a really good example of that, that you, um, you know, a memory is only a memory when you remember it. You know, it's, it, there is a kind of temporal component there. And if you and just the kind of layout itself isn't really going to tell you very much, but it will tell you more than we know now. So I kind of feel there is use in it, but it probably also highlights the, the limitations of, of mapping as a, as a sort of scientific endeavor. And also, I mean, one of the things to, why I believe that the science part was very important to answer, you know, Tom, your point from before, is that, I mean, I really do believe that this disconnection between, you know, art and science is, is a great loss. And, 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 you know, we should never forget that Marcel Duchamp got his main inspiration from Poincaré and that there can be these, you know, cross-fertilizing inspirations. And I do believe that, you know, hopefully with this book, because this book travels, you know, through the disciplines, you know, that, that dozens of different practitioners are involved, uh, many, many different scientists, artists, architects, poets, you know, novelists. Um, and through that, you know, it hopefully we travel through all the fields and through all the disciplines. And, you know, I, I do believe that some of these science maps might be great inspiration for artists. In a similar way, Poincaré triggered something, you know, in, in, in Duchamp, as hopefully many of these artist maps might, you know, inspire scientists. So it is about this bridge somehow, or yeah. going beyond that fear of, yeah. of pooling knowledge. And, uh, you know, James Libias, it goes back to James Libias. I mean, James Libias did his World Question Center and he thought, you know, we need to talk to many different disciplines to, to get all the right questions. So he asked Sean Brockman to set up, you know, to get him all these different scientists. And he, even at the end, 
got the Dalai Lama and, you know, he got Freeman Dyson, you know, to ask him a question. It's an incredible video. Should you ever, you know, um, see James Rebios from the 70s? And you have just all the great thinkers, philosophers at that time asking the question. They were most, you know, and so the artist James Rebios did an artwork with it. What he didn't tell is that each time somebody asked a question, he hang up on them. So it was like <laughs> a quiet, it was quite brutal. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned Latour and um, geographers who are using the tradition of science technology studies uh, like um, Nigel Thrift and Doreen Massey talk about scale as a practice, scaling as a practice, something that happens through activities. You also mentioned Certeau. So I was just wondering whether one way of thinking about these artworks is to think that what these artists are doing is materialising a world and a passage through it. It's not simply for me that they are creating representations, obviously you're saying that in different ways, but it's also that they're sort of making manifest or making some kind of ontology available to, to the viewer or the participant and indeed to themselves and then also a passage through it. Yeah, I mean, Latour, because it's, it's, it's interesting that you would ask about Latour because we didn't really go into, into that before when, when Tom mentioned it. Uh, uh, I think in, in a way, I mean, Latour, um, he, I need to find this quote here. He, he sort of has actually uh, written a lot, as Tom said, about navigation and cartographic strategies. And there is a text which addresses somehow, um, you know, your question called entering a risky territory space in the age of digital navigation. And he wrote this with another scholar, Valerie November, and another one called Eduardo Camacho Hübner. And that text investigates the relationship between the base map and the overlaying of secondary levels of contingent factors over the space, as well as the distinction made between physical and human geographies. So we can say that the advent of digital technologies has actually revealed that all these layers belong equally to the idea of the territory, and that the implication of these are wide, obviously, in, both, you know, in terms of, of cartography. So that's what I meant before with these new, you know, new kinds of kinds of hybrid. And Latour is also an, an interesting is an interesting example of what can happen, you know, when we make this bridge, you know, between the disciplines. Because he obviously, you know, as a historian, you know, of science has more than anyone else, you know, bridged, you know, philosophy with literature with science over the last years. And at a certain moment, we encouraged him to come into the world of exhibitions. And so in 99, we got him with Papa Fandolini into a laboratorium, and he thought it was very, very exciting that actually he would suddenly curate. So he curated a series of tabletop experiments where, you know, the, the scientists would do experiments in public. And when you transport an experiment from the public sphere, you know, from the laboratory into the public sphere, it can actually eventually fail. So it was that kind of experiment. And so he got so excited by this that he then decided to de de devote actually several years of his life and his work to the medium of the exhibition. And he curated these remarkable exhibitions at the ZKM uh, in a similar way as Lyotard did, you know, in yeah, earlier times with, with Les Immateriaux. And we should not forget, I mean, that's another thing. I mean, I'm jumping now back to the previous question about science. I have obviously in my mind is that, you know, I do believe that making this bridge, you know, we can also kind of all of a sudden create unexpected new curatorship forms. Yeah, I think it's interesting, very interesting if all of a sudden somebody from a totally other field like science uh, or literature, you know, enters that world of, you know, medium of the exhibition. So by involving scientists in that kind of way, you know, in the show, things can happen, like that thing with Latour, which we triggered, then it happened with a small thing in Laboratorium, and all of a sudden there were these, these shows. I love this idea of, of the artwork and taking the form of an experiment. Or you think of Joseph Boyce with his performances that were kind of scientific lectures about, you know, with diagrams mm -hmm. that, that he just kind of made up, basically. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah... This or Panamarenko. Panamarenko, exactly, yeah. So, um, or John Latham, or Gustav Masker. Mm. 
Thanks. Uh, it's always great to be in this place. It's the best bookshop in London. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for your questions. Thank you, Richard. And most of all, thank you, Hans Ulrich Cobris and Tom McCarthy. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.